0: Well, hello. My name is Angelle Wood, and this is Crime of the Truest Kind. Faces. That, of course, is in honor of William Murderface of the TV show Metalocalypse and the fake band Death Clock. This is Murderface. Could you have a great day? Could you do that for me? Thanks. He's very thoughtful. Keep your eyes on CrimeOfTheTruestKind.com for a couple of things. Jump on the list to get updates on the show. I have some very cool things coming. New merch items, as I have mentioned. And I'm working on something, well, I'm gonna call extra cool because I cannot tell you about it yet, but I will very soon. I know I don't like the cryptic stuff either. I don't like the announcement announcement. I'm hoping to iron that out maybe in the next week. So hmm. follow, subscribe, rate and review. Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Stitcher, and Audible. Thank you so much to super supporter Sandy, Lee. Joanne, Pat, all coffee funders who gave to buy me a coffee this week—if you so choose—it is linked on crimeofthetruestkind.com. You can click on Otis the Bulldog's face. You can click on the coffee cup, and whatever it is, it is greatly appreciated because you carry this show. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, also linked at crimeofthetruestkind.com, and follow the show everywhere at Crime of the Truest Kind on Instagram and Facebook. There is a iHeart True Crime Facebook group, if you want to get in on that, at TruestKind on Twitter and TikTok. Oh, and also buy me a coffee. I did not want to make you wait a full two weeks for a part two of the Worcester Six story. So let's get to it. Episode 23, the Worcester Six, The Cold Storage, Warehouse Fire, Worcester, Massachusetts, Part 2. One of the biggest challenges in fighting fires in Worcester is the amount of different types of buildings that make up the area. Old three-decker apartment buildings, many warehouses and buildings without windows, extremely dangerous buildings, fortresses, really. Buildings like the Cold Storage Warehouse and others like it were always a major concern to firehouses around the community. Something that was of major concern to the crews, and particularly Jerry Lucy, who was called the Firefighters, firefighter, the guy who would always have your back. He was concerned about the lack of funding for training facilities and for equipment. He continued to train, mostly out of pocket, like scuba diving, for example, to make him better prepared in any rescue situation. In the late 1990s, in the city of Worcester, they were using abandoned buildings as training facilities. There was no money in the budget for extras. Training was on their dime. But nothing could have prepared him or any of the firefighters for what they encountered that night inside an abandoned 93-year-old cold storage warehouse that was fully engulfed. It shined the light on the very serious question of safety among these abandoned buildings, what the city was doing with them, and what the city was doing about the growing homeless population. It was common knowledge among those in the vicinity of the warehouses that people were living inside. When those men went inside the warehouse that December night, they were looking for people they believed to be inside. We soon learned that there were none. Then began the conjecture and the finger-pointing. From what the city did and did not do to handle the homeless population, how they got into the building in the first place, and why the fire commander made the call to send the firefighters inside the blaze. Teams of firefighters remained at the scene, sifting through the debris for days after the fire. By day four of their search, frustrations mounted as weary firefighters were forced to suspend their efforts for eight hours for fears that an unstable wall might collapse outside what one called the building from hell. The search resumed after a large crane dismantled a part of that unsteady firewall. That delay added to the pain for desperate family members. The frustration was palpable. Families were overwhelmed with grief. Crowds of firefighters stood watch as front-end loaders sorted rubble into piles. Twisted metal, crumbled bricks, ashes. Family members huddled in blankets nearby as smoke hung in the air and light rain fell. And the ripple spread far beyond Worcester, more than 12,000 firefighters were expected to attend a memorial service at the Worcester Centrum the Thursday after the fire. Bells tolled. The air filled with the blare of bagpipes, a sometimes comforting yet solemn sound. What they learned was that the center of the building had collapsed. The top floors of the five story warehouse building had pancaked down on top of each other. The firefighters were buried somewhere in those stories of rubble. Hearing this I feel for those families of those men. To have that information that would haunt me for life. That building that sat empty in downtown Worcester for ten years. The building these men drove by at least a thousand times, that building became their tomb. Because of the nature of the build, a large structure with several floors, each about 15,000 square feet, it posed a huge challenge to the firefighters who were not familiar with it. It was a maze of connecting meat lockers. The way the walls were insulated was damning, layered with cork, tar, polystyrene, and sprayed polyurethane foam. Highly combustible. And when the air hit it, it spread like, well, Wildfire. No firewalls or fire doors existed, and there was only one staircase within this mammoth abandoned warehouse that connected the basement to the roof. Due to the circumstances and their lack of knowledge of the layout, once the men went in, it would be a miracle if they got out. Conditions inside the building deteriorated rapidly. The fire burned hot and fast, reaching upwards of 3,000 degrees. Built in 1906, the Worcester Cold Storage and Warehouse Company building was huge and took the entire city block on Franklin Street. I posted many pictures on the Instagram feed. Sometime around 1987, the cold storage warehouse was put out to pasture. As late as April 1999, after firefighters doused a minor fire on the roof of an adjacent building, the city's fire prevention unit complained that people could easily find their way inside that building and the Worcester Cold Storage Building. And they ordered that both be more solidly secured. And by June 7th, Ding on Tony Kwan, the Framingham developer and Harvard-trained architect who owned the cold storage warehouse and a handful of vacant buildings next to the site, was believed to have secured the warehouses. This is the same owner whose lawyers said that the Worcester Six's own negligence was to blame for their deaths. I'll return to that. Stay with me. I have the utmost respect and compassion for the victims and their families, who must survive this unfathomable loss. Now, I said fifteen in the last episode, and please go back and listen to part one if you have not. But in a CNN report, the deaths of the six firefighters left 17 children without fathers. I imagine many dark days, weeks, months, even years, where it is nearly impossible to get out of bed and face the day. For anyone who has experienced loss, this is all too real. Imagine if someone took that loved one from you, murdered. I don't know how I would get through that. This is empathy. Empathy. If you put yourselves in the shoes of another, you might understand their situation a little bit more clearly. And someone suffering this kind of loss is thinking, how do I do this? People do want revenge, and I understand that. And some, some want forgiveness. I have never seen anything quite as moving as the people of Charleston, South Carolina, after the premeditated mass murder of the good people at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church who opened their doors and their hearts to their eventual killer. Nadine Collier, the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, stood before her mother's shooter in a courtroom. Through the depths of her grief, Anne said, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. I was moved to tears when I saw that. And I still am. I don't know how these families feel. The Jacksons, the Lucys, the Brothertons, the McGurks, the Lyonses, the Spencers. About those two people responsible for taking their husbands, their daddies, their uncles, their cousins, their best friend, their baseball coach, their riding buddy, away from them. But whatever they feel is theirs... There's one very obvious parallel between the Worcester Warehouse fire and the station nightclub fire for me. It is how emotional this subject still is. I have an overwhelming amount of empathy for the families. I also have compassion for the others involved in this case, too. Now, you know, I do not protect the feelings of killers. I don't make excuses for why people have done what they have done. In all that I have learned about Thomas Levake and the woman who was then known as Julie Barnes, they were victimized by the system. Many people have had bad parents and rough childhoods and gone on to live meaningful lives and not killed anyone, on purpose or through negligence. That does not preclude anyone from punishment, however. Each case should be looked at individually. So let's talk about Julie Barnes and Thomas Levesque, two people whose lives were spared that night in 1999. Sometime that spring... Thomas Levake and Julie Barnes began a relationship. She was young and naive. And I'm willing to bet she didn't have a lot of relationship experience. Aside from the one she ended with her high school after her sophomore year. She struggled quite a lot. The two of them were known to go to Mustard Seed, or Mustard Seed, as we say here in the Commonwealth. It is a soup kitchen where they got their meals and they spent their nights on the second floor of the Worcester Cold Storage Building. Julie, Thomas Levesque, Julie's cat, and Julie's dog. Their relationship was volatile. Today, we'd probably say toxic. The night of December 3rd, they were technically broken up, but staying in the warehouse together to shelter from the cold. A piece in the Hartford Current took it a step further when talking about Thomas Levake and Julie Barnes. They were a couple, at least for some measure of time. Too childlike to endure the working world, to follow the rules of a shelter, or to call 911 when a fire broke out in their makeshift dwelling. A woman named Donna, who'd gotten to know them as manager of a local soup kitchen, said he was like a scared little boy. Other people who knew Thomas Levesque had other things to say, as did court documents that portrayed a man who abandoned his children, terrorized their mother, and assaulted a former pregnant girlfriend. He was said by some who knew him to be calm, unless provoked, and quiet, unless he drank. Levake had a string of girlfriends who all eventually got away from him. There was a history of violent assaults against women, and he came from a family that included two convicted murderers and one paroled felon. Some woman had sought restraining orders against him. In fact, Leveque had first dated Julie's aunt Norma. The two had twins together. Norma sought court protection from him. And in October 1999, Julie Barnes did too. The couple were known to bicker constantly. And it sometimes did turn physical. Julie had a miscarriage early in their relationship and by December 1999 was three months pregnant with a son. After one heated argument, Julie Barnes had asked for a restraining order. A judge denied it the same day for reasons that remain unclear. And despite a few court appearances, the two lived what has been called a subterranean existence, in the shadows of reality where the rest of society prefers not to see. Thomas Levake was 37 in 1999. He grew up in Worcester, where his mother still lived at the time of the fire. He was the product of a troubled home. And people remember him saying he was thrown out of his house when he was 10 by his mother. Levesque had never been convicted of a crime. He had been arrested on charges that were later dismissed. In 1993, for assault and battery against her girlfriends. And in 1994, for disorderly conduct. Two former girlfriends received restraining orders against him in the mid-90s. His main source of income, friends said, was what he earned from sporadic temporary jobs. Painting houses, delivering newspapers, odd jobs at construction sites. Getting work was difficult. Thomas Levake reportedly could not read, and he could not write. Now I try to keep my editorializing to a minimum on this podcast. But if a 37-year-old man cannot read or write, that is a catastrophic failure on society's part. He was known to spin into a jealous rage and got spun up when he was drinking. Others said he could be quiet and calm, like the pastor at a church that offered aid to the local homeless. He remembered Levik wheeling a shopping cart through the neighborhood, searching for cans and church trash bins, sometimes coming inside to ask for food. He was shy and passive and polite. People are when they want something. Alcohol was a problem for Leveque, and he sometimes tried to get sober. About a year before the fire, he entered Worcester Public Inebriate Program, PIP, and he seemed to do well for a time, working in the shelter kitchen, taking medication. Levesque could lash out violently when provoked, and that tended to happen a lot during his relationship with Julie Barnes. Oh, when they argued about where they would sleep, what they would eat, he tried to control her friendships and would often take her with him when he went looking for jobs. That's something friends said he wasn't equipped to do for long. He could not hold a job. His transient lifestyle was said to be by choice. But was it? Supposedly, his mother wanted him to stay with her. He was known to sleep at the downtown homeless shelter. And not long before the fire, found his way into the abandoned buildings that line Worcester's downtown. Now, there are many reasons why people without homes choose not to live in shelters. Some people are sick, and they're afraid they're going to catch something from somebody else. Some are simply unstable, or unable to be around people in that setting. They fear altercations, and some want the freedom that the street provides to drink and use. Levesque didn't have that choice, though. Weeks before the fire, he was booted from the shelter after an altercation with staff members. Around early November, he found his way inside the Worcester Cold Storage Building. It's not clear when or how often Julie Barnes joined him, but it was enough for neighboring businesses to notice. On the night of the fire, it was the owner of the diner across the street who told firefighters there were people living inside. City authorities had to have feigned surprise when they heard people were living in the abandoned warehouses. People involved in the homeless community knew the buildings were being occupied this way for at least a decade. Lifted directly from court records, and I quote, On October 27, 1999, Worcester Police K-9 officer Daniel Sullivan responded to a complaint about the conditions in the warehouse. When Officer Sullivan opened the door to the warehouse, he was overcome by the smell of rotting garbage, feces, and urine. Inside, he found a large room with piles of garbage bags and numerous takeout food containers with half-eaten meals thrown all over the place. Next to a far wall were piles and piles of human waste. In a second room, Officer Sullivan found a makeshift bedroom. In the bedroom was a closet containing a box overflowing with cat feces. At that point, Officer Sullivan decided to terminate the search out of concern for the health and safety of his dog. Local authorities took no further action to investigate the building. It was anger that fueled the fire that night. Thomas Leveque and Julie Barnes got into a fight. He smacked her. She stood up to defend herself. A flickering candle, the only light in the pitch-black meat locker, was knocked over, landing in a pile of clothes. Flames spread to some old papers. And we know there was garbage strewn about. Thomas and Julie tried to stomp it out as the glow grew. It only made it spread faster. So they ran. They made their way down a narrow stairway to the street. At least they knew how to escape. That was not the case for the firefighters who went in to save them. Their only regret was not finding the cats and the dog Julie doted over. You know I'll be straight with you, because any time there's a dog or a cat or an animal involved in the story, I always want to know how they are. Once out of the building, they walked down Franklin Street to the Worcester Common Outlet Mall. They went into the music store at Media Play. It was somewhere Julie was known to frequent. She sat at the listening station, hidden under headphones, lost in the latest hit releases. Santana and Rob Thomas. Smooth was the number one song that week in 1999. I won't play it, but you know the one. Someone working at the store claimed to hear them arguing. They could have easily reported the fire. Imagine if they called on the cell phone they were said to have. Or dropped a dime into a payphone, or I guess a quarter maybe then. Or is it 911 free? Or told the clerk at the mall store that they had just seen people running out of the warehouse and told them it was on fire. They could have lied. Now, I don't know that they had the capacity to understand what would happen. They found places to stay that night. He was at a friend's apartment. She stayed with someone in a hotel room where she watched the fire out of a fourth floor window. Julie Barnes was known to be quiet. She said very little. She was invested in her pets, a cat and a dog. And for this staying at shelters proved very difficult. She took temporary work and lived on and off with Levake, sometimes leaving him for weeks at a time. Julie seemed to eventually reappear, though. She was very childlike at 19, walked around holding her cat. I can relate, sort of. When you come from a chaotic family, the love and loyalty of a pet is truly one of the most beautiful bonds. I have five dogs. I must be compensating for something. By all accounts, her younger years were also sad. She was picked on, bullied, given cruel nicknames by the kids scrub, loser, and worse. She was a little different. And unfortunately, kids hone in on that. She had been held back a year and was enrolled in special education classes. She wore dirty or ripped clothes, pants that didn't quite fit or make it past her ankles. Her hair was dirty. She carried a cat to school in her backpack. Her classmates teased her mercilessly. She struggled, but still hung around them, trying to make friends, strike up conversations, brag about her boyfriends, or pay misplaced compliments. She once told a girl that she really liked her chapstick. That, to me, is kind of a run-of-the-mill awkward teen move, though. She was laughed at. And often laughed at herself, even when the jokes were at her own expense. Few people intervened when the teasing got too intense. There was a classmate named Alex who spoke of stepping in once, telling the other kids to back off. But there were countless other times no one cared enough. At North High School, she was there to laugh at. It's likely she didn't even know they were laughing at her. She wasn't able to recognize it, and she dropped out after sophomore year. Her parents split in the early 80s. She lived with her mother, her siblings, and a stepfather. The man believed to be her father, Kevin Castingay, was estranged from his daughter since the fall of 1998. She had spent her early childhood with her mother, Evelyn Menard. And by 1985, after reports of sexual abuse and neglect had surfaced, the Department of Social Services stepped in. In 1992, her father took custody of her and a sister, according to the Boston Globe, where she became exceedingly more difficult to manage. By the time she turned 16, she was combative, stealing, and sometimes even left and stayed in shelters. All but that last part kind of defines what a teenage girl is. And when she turned 18, she moved out for good. Thomas Levake told people that they started the warehouse fire. This supports my theory that if more than one person is involved in a crime or misdeed, someone is bound to talk. Some shit is just too meaty to keep to themselves. Word traveled quickly through the streets of Worcester. And by Tuesday, December 7th, four days after the fire, police picked up Thomas Levesque. Shirley was located the following day and taken into custody. They pleaded not guilty at the arraignment in Worcester Central District Court on six counts of involuntary manslaughter and were ordered held on $1 million bail pending a court appearance the following week. They requested separate attorneys. Levesque would be transferred from Worcester to the Middlesex County Jail in Cambridge for his own protection. And as you would imagine, many people knew the Worcester firefighters, whether they were working in the jail or if they were staying in the jail. Later, he would be transferred to the Bridgewater State Hospital for 30 days of psychiatric observation. A judge ordered the commitment at the request of officials at the jail in Cambridge after he was examined by a forensic psychologist there. Julie Barnes was interviewed by a court psychologist who reported that she was of, quote, less than average intelligence, but was competent to stand trial. Prenatal care for the baby she was carrying was provided by the Department of Corrections. While all of this was going on, miles away in Maine, a man named Tim King was reading through his local paper a few weeks after the fire. He saw something familiar in this young face. Julie Barnes looked remarkably like his daughter Jennifer. Before they were married, his wife Deb was living in Auburn, Massachusetts, when she took Jennifer in as a foster child when she was a baby. Jennifer's biological mother, Evelyn Barnes, did have other children. Jennifer was slow to learn. She had speech trouble. Social workers labeled her non-adoptable. No child is unadoptable. Deb got custody of Jennifer when she was three, adopting her as a permanent member of her family along with her other children, ages 12 and 13. Over the years, they lost track of Jennifer's biological family. And she and her husband Tim King moved to Ellsworth, Maine. They saw the resemblance in Julie’s photo looking back at them from the pages of the paper. They knew she was Jennifer’s biological sister. Jennifer was 16 years old by then, and they had always known that she had an older sister. They had met Julie when they adopted Jennifer in Worcester 13 years earlier. Deb King also knew the sisters shared some significant diagnoses. Jennifer was diagnosed as having intellectual disabilities and they were told her level of function was that of an eight-year-old child. And Julie's condition was believed to be similar to Jennifer's. Their lives turned out very differently, though. Julie had been in and out of foster homes. She dropped out of high school and graduated to life on the city streets. Jennifer grew up with love and guidance in small-town Maine. She was a special education honor roll student. Deb King didn't think Julie Barnes would be able to comprehend the seriousness of the fire or have the sense of urgency to call 911. The Kings wanted to get Julie and take her to Maine. So, 13 years later, after Julie was left to fend for herself, the Kings got involved. They visited her in jail, worked to get her out on bail, and fought to get the charges against her dropped. They posted her $25,000 cash bail in July 2000, after what I would guess was some fundraising, and moved her to their home with a judge's permission. Then they took it one step further. They adopted her. Julie Ann Barnes became Julie Ann King. This would all be a bit of a tough sell among those grieving the loss of the Worcester Six. The wounds were fresh. Most seemed to understand that the fire was accidental. What was difficult to accept is that they didn't do anything about it. And the kings believed Julie would be another victim of the tragedy if she were sent to prison. Julie Barnes became a mother in June of 2000 while she was being held at the Framingham State Prison for Women. She delivered her son under armed guard at Massachusetts General Hospital. After the birth, her ankles were placed in shackles. Baby Joshua was put into foster care and was raised by another family. In September 2000, Superior Court Judge Timothy Hillman dismissed the charges against them, ruling that insufficient evidence existed to charge them with manslaughter because the defendant's actions would have to be wanton and reckless to be considered involuntary manslaughter. But then, the Supreme Judicial Court reinstated the charges saying there was sufficient evidence to conclude the couple's choice to not report the fire was intentional and reckless. After two very emotional years of legal wrangling, closure came in 2002, when a judge approved a deal to drop involuntary manslaughter charges against Thomas LeVake and Julie King if they successfully complete five years probation. It was widely reported that Thomas Levake and Julie King did have cognitive impairments. District Attorney John Conti said their lawyers did not enter medical records backing up those claims into the court record until much later. And back in 2002, this was his quote. They're marginally retarded, which would make it just about impossible to try this case that was probably our only option. And as you would imagine, this was met with mixed emotions among those who were affected by the fire and the loss of Tim Jackson, Jerry Lucy, Jay Lyons, Paul Brotherton, Tom Spencer, and Joe McGurk. Let's always remember they are the ones who were killed. They are the real victims in this case. After the investigation concluded and the Worcester Cold Storage and Warehouse structure was demolished. It wasn't clear right away what would become of the site. In 2004, the city acquired the former warehouse property through eminent domain, paying $900,000 to the building's owner, Tony Kwan. This is the same man whose lawyer said the firefighters' own negligence could be to blame for their deaths. All part of the defense's legal wrangling that is based on a state law known as the Comparative Negligence Statute. This law says that if a victim is at least 51% responsible for their own injury or death, they are not entitled to monetary damages. This is according to the legal response to a wrongful death suit against property owners Ding On Tony Kwan and his wife Shu Mei Kwan. The wives of four of the men killed went forward with the wrongful death lawsuits against the building's owner after rejecting his out-of-court settlement offer. The families of two other firefighters, James Lyons III and Joseph McGurk, did settle and accepted Tony Kwan's offer of $166,667 each. The amount is one-sixth of the $1 million insurance payment the Kwan's received for the former cold-storage warehouse where they died. The four families were each seeking up to $2.5 million in a lawsuit filed in Worcester Superior Court, claiming Kwan was negligent about securing the vacant warehouse. Kwan called the lost firefighters heroes, but insisted he had taken every human step possible to secure his property from the homeless or vandals. The families eventually settled in 2003, reaching a $1 million out-of-court settlement with Mr. Kwan. Mary Louise Jackson, Kathleen Spencer, Michelle Lucy, and Denise Brotherton dropped their multi million dollar lawsuit against Quan and signed the agreement, giving them $250,000 each. Quan's $1 million package included the $900,000 the city of Worcester paid him for an eminent domain taking of the Franklin Street lot and $100,000 out of his own pocket. The Worcester Cold Storage Warehouse lot at 266 Franklin Street became the Franklin Street Firehouse, a living memorial to the six men who reported for duty that night and never made it home. That's the thing that's most important to those that were left behind, is to not have it be a statue, but to have it be in service and protect the city of Worcester. Seven sons of the Worcester Six. Went on to be firefighters following in their father's footsteps five of Paul Brotherton's six sons are Worcester firefighters it's amazing they honor their dad every day Michael and Brian Brotherton are stationed at the South Division station on Southbridge Street Michael on engine 13 and Brian on engine 2 they are dads to little ones now Stephen is stationed on Park Avenue engine 4 Timothy is stationed on Engine 6 at the Franklin Street Station, built on the site where his father died. David Brotherton is stationed on Ladder 5 on McKeon Road. There is another brother, the civilian. Jonathan works in construction in Boston. Jerry Lucy III, who was 11 years old when his dad Jerry died in the fire, always thought his dad was a hero, and he knew he too would be a firefighter one day. He's stationed at the Franklin Street House, on the site where his dad was killed. It doesn't bother him as much as people think it would, he said in a piece in the Worcester Telegram in December 2019, that marked the 20th anniversary of the Worcester Cold Storage Warehouse fire. Firefighting is high risk, we know. In December 2018, Jerry Lucy was trapped with fellow Worcester firefighter Christopher Roy in a burning apartment building on Lowell Street. While Jerry Lucy made it out, Christopher Roy did not. So Lucy had to cope with a deep sense of loss for his friend. And with that, emotions come rushing back. He too has a son now, Jeremiah Lucy, the fourth. Lieutenant Thomas Spencer's son Daniel proudly followed in his dad's footsteps. He talked about that December dread they experienced. December 3rd is the warehouse fire anniversary. In December 2011, his first year with the fire department, Firefighter John Davies died in a fire on Arlington Street. In December 2018, Christopher Roy died in that fire on Lowell Street, the one Jerry Lucy made it out of. Spencer knew Christopher Roy well. They worked as stagehands at the DCU Center, aka the Worcester Centrum. The night word came down of his friend's death, Daniel Spencer was getting his kids ready for the fire department Christmas party when a text came in that the party was canceled. That was a sure sign that something was very wrong. I get it when they say it's a brotherhood. You need others to have your back. Be willing to go in, no matter what, and to help you mourn when things go terribly wrong. I have a newfound respect for firefighters. There is a joke floating around the internet, I know you've heard it. Nobody ever wrote a song called Fuck the Fire Department. Back in 2004, a movie was in the works called 3,000 Degrees, based on, I believe, the great article in Esquire that is linked to the show notes for this episode at crimeofthetruestkind.com. It is about the Worcester Warehouse Fire. Reports are that the Massachusetts Firefighters Union so strongly opposed the making of this movie that they forced the studio to shut down pre-production. In a joint news release, the movie companies said they lacked the support needed to make the film, Due to circumstances beyond our control, we no longer have such support, the release said. The movie, featuring actors Ed Harris and Woody Harrelson, was axed. Maybe Marky Mark we will give it the Patriot State treatment and rush in the building and save the day. Or what's that movie about the oil spill? Oh, and then there's the perfect storm. That pissed the families off quite a lot, I remember. Worcester-born actor and comedian Dennis Leary has done great work with the Leary Firefighters Foundation, raising money for fire companies across the U.S. to get training and supplies they desperately need. Worcester was forced to relive those memories once again when Fire Lieutenant Jason Menard died on November 13, 2019, fighting a house fire on Stockholm Street. It was just weeks before the 20th anniversary of the warehouse fire. The city was raw. And to commemorate the Worcester Six, the Worcester Red Sox announced that they retired the number six. The team agreed to sell commemorative Worcester Six jerseys and to donate a portion of the proceeds to the Worcester Fire Department Memorial's Care Fund. Thank you for listening. All of the show notes and links to the sources that I read through for this episode at crimeofthetruestkind.com. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it. That's the best way for others to learn. Post about it, share it. Word of mouth. I would be grateful if you did. Your support through leaving a rating and writing a review helps the show get more visibility. Visit the shop online. Many Crime of the Truest kinds and iHeart True Crime items available. Plus, lock your damn doors up there too. Otis is coming to the merch store. I know that's funny, but, and I'm surprised he's not down here right now making snorty sounds. My anti-serial killer designs are coming. I'll ask for your feedback on those. I truly believe true crime shouldn't be about Halloween 24-7. And that is a direct quote from something that Sarah Turney posted. She wrote, and I shared this, to all of the people who don't treat true crime like a 24-7 Halloween party, I love you. And my response was this. I've learned so much since I started doing this show less than a year ago. My radio training taught me well about research and digging in and presentation. But being in it and sharing stories of the worst days of someone's life is a responsibility. I've learned that there are different kinds of podcasts and podcasters. I applaud Sarah Turney for towing the line and reminding everyone who considers themselves part of the true crime community what is at stake. It's the truest for me. Sarah Turney hosts Voices for Justice podcast that she started to solve her sister's murder. So to anyone who may be listening to this, who knew the men who were killed, who were related to the men who were killed, I'm very sorry. I wish you and your families did not have to go through what you went through for the last 21 years. All right, contact me anytime. All my information available at CrimeOfTheTruestKind.com. Until we meet again, lock your goddamn doors.